Bucks out. Yesterday, the playoffs officially started, and what an opening date was. We had four game ones going on yesterday, and honestly, none of them really disappointed. I thought we had a lot of action. Let's get right into the first game that was really the most controversial game. Mavericks and the Clippers last night, which was a fantastic game to watch as a viewer, but it almost was stained because of the controversy that it was arise because of the referees. Corey, you want to get into what exactly happened? And I mean, I know this is your guy right here, Chris Asperzingis. It's my former guy. Really got me upset as a Knicks fan, but I know that ejection was disgusting. First of all, the, the second, he, he was ejected because he had two technicals in the game. The first technical was off of a, he was called for a foul on a block that he thought was clean. Ref gave him a quick tech for a reaction that I guess the referees didn't like. The second ejection came when the referees claimed that Porzingis was acting as an escalator in a scuffle between Morris and Luka Doncic. Porzingis came to his teammate's side trying to protect him and the referees saw it as hostile. Everyone was saying from Jeff Van Gundy, LeBron James, Patrick Mahomes, everyone all over the internet on Twitter was like, that's a terrible ejection. And it, it's warranted because the second technical was not, I think, it, it did not warrant an ejection. But I think it's also Porzingis' fault. He should know that he had one technical, that he can't be doing something that looks hostile like that. And it might have cost the Mavericks a game one win. Yeah, it was definitely tough for for Porzingis because the first one that he got was 1,000% attack. It's just a standard by the book. Porzingis basically swung his fist in the air out of like disgust to the call. And again, as Steve Javi mentioned in the in the in the broadcast on ESPN, that is a a textbook rule. If a player swings his fist in the air, it's an automatic technical. There's no questions asked. And Paul George earlier in the, in the game, in the first half, did the same exact thing, swung his fist out in disgust and got attacked. It's it's just it's a thing that is is so standard in the NBA that Porzingis again and and all the players know this. The ejection was where I had my beef. I didn't think that you can inject someone in a playoff game for that kind of thing. I've seen that happen so many times in the league where there have been no repercussions for it, especially when a guy already has a tech. But I guess the refs knew, obviously, that he had already had one. And again, as you said, Corey, I completely agree. Porzingis needs to know better. He already has a tech. He can't be going in escalating the situation like that. I understand he has his teammates back. I, I really respect that. But at the end of the day, you have to play smart in a playoff game, nonetheless. And they were up by five in the second half. They had a lot of the momentum. I mean, they, they started off the game. They were down 18-2 to two to the Clippers. They really they, they just seemed phased. They seemed like they weren't ready for the big moment. And then they came out. They basically, after the 18-2 start, they went on a 48-18 to 18 run and really went up by 14 points in the second quarter. It could have been a great game to watch. I don't know if the Mavericks would have pulled it out at the end. But they would have for sure had a better chance if Porzingis didn't get ejected. Yeah, I mean, going back to Marcus Morris, I, I I don't know if he meant to instigate that. I don't know if he knew, had it in his mind that he knew Porzingis had one tech and if he instigated. Like, if KP got another tech, he's out. That's something I feel Marcus Morris might have known, had an idea. Marcus Morris also played a great game. Great game this time, by the way. Possibly his best game as a Clipper. But it was also interesting to see Luka. Most points scored by in a first ever playoff appearance. 42 points, 9 assists, 7 rebounds. 
and even with Porzingis out of the game for most of the second half, I felt like the Mavs, they didn't let the Clippers pull away the whole time, even though you would think like the Clippers should be blowing this team out now. It's just Luka and a bunch of role players. But Luka kept it close. Luka definitely carried this team to try and, 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 and really get this upset game one, especially without his, his budding star. But the Mavericks have a lot of work to do if they want to come back and make the series close. I said in the beginning uh, in our predictions that they don't have enough, that the role players need to need to show up and that Luka needs to really get them involved, which is going to be tough considering the Clippers switch everything. And we saw that in the first minute or two of the game when they really blitzed Luka and they were switching everything. And I, th- I think what Luka did was phenomenal because as a second-year guy, the adjustments he made, he went back into the locker room after they were down 18-2, to got his ankle taped up because I think he rolled it a little bit. And then he, when he came back, it's like him and Carlisle and the coaching staff, they came up with a completely new game plan. And I'm not sure if they had they just hadn't executed in the beginning or there was a new one, but Luca started taking Ivaka Zubak on a pick and roll every time. He was singling him out every single play. And it was perfect because the Clippers can really switch pretty much anyone through one through four, but not their five man. Zubak was getting killed on a pick and roll. Luca was getting to the to the paint at will and either finishing or finding a shooter in the corner or on the wings. Seth Curry hit four threes. Tim Hardaway hit four threes. Michael hit Gilchrist, who's not a known shooter at all, hits two threes. So all these assists that Luka was getting, it was, it was, it was from the pick-and-roll action. And I think they really they really manipulated Zubak being on the floor very well, even when Harrell was on the floor. Harrell is it's not like, like he's in great shape. He looks a little bit rusty. This is his first time playing basketball in a month, as they've said. And I think that the Clippers are going to need to really... If, if they want to win this series, they're going to need to figure out a lineup that doesn't involve Zubak at the five, especially in crunch time in the fourth. Or even Harrell, for that matter. I think it's I think this series, Harrell really becomes obsolete, especially down the stretch. I think they're going to have to put either Marcus Morris at the center or Jermichael Green at the center because only those two guys can really handle the pick and roll at a, a way that will at least limit the amount of assists that Luka gets to the three-point line and the amount of penetration he takes into the paint. Doc Rivers made a great adjustment in the fourth quarter because Morris did play at center in the fourth quarter. And again, as you said, he had one of his best games as a Clipper. 19 points, four steals, six rebounds, went eight for 13 from the field. And when he was at center, the Clippers were, were heavily advantaged, in my opinion. Yeah, 100%. I think that's why they traded for him. You know, he's he's able to guard, at least give a fight for almost anyone on the court defensively. I saw it firsthand as a Knicks fan for his, his time that he was here. I mean, the last thing also, I mean, the Mavericks really need to cut the turnovers down. Luka had 11 last mm-hmm. night. I agree. And as a team, as a team, they had 21. And the Clippers, on the other hand, had 11 as a whole. So they matched Luka's turnovers. With that, they took 14 more shots as a team. So, you know, when you're turning the ball over, obviously you don't get the shots up. And that's, that's a really big thing for them. I think they, if they limit those turnovers at least in half... I think they're in way better position to win this game. And again, last point, the Clippers really weren't that amazing to me last night. I think they have a lot of work to do with chemistry and a lot of really just dumb plays they were making down the stretch. But the thing is, Kawhi Leonard was playing hard. And that's what you see with play of Kawhi. Yeah, I mean, you know, Patrick Beverly just came back. Montrose Harrell just came back. All their role players, I feel they weren't really 
playing during the the preseason games as much. You know, Doc Rivers is going down his bench. I, I think the chemistry will come, of course, and we'll see the clips we expect. Game two is Wednesday at 6 p.m. on TNT. Uh, the second game that we both kind of were caught by surprise by how good it was, I think, was the Nuggets and Jazz game. Nuggets won 135-125, but I think the highlight of this game was Donovan Mitchell scoring 57. It was the third highest playoff scoring game ever. Only Michael Jordan and Elgin Baylor have scored more. And for most of the game, it was really, it was a really tight game, really close game. Mitchell was carrying the Jazz, who were without Mike Conley, who left the bubble to attend the birth of his son in Ohio. And I think Donovan Mitchell really did not want to lose this game. He was scoring at will. The Nuggets had no answer for him all game. I think if it weren't for one play, where momentum shifted after a bad uh, eight-second violation call that Mitchell was not aware of, it might have been a different game. Yeah, for sure. That eight-second violation was a huge momentum swing because Utah was up by four points with about two minutes left. And right after that eight-second violation, Murray comes down and hits a three mm-hmm. to cut it to one. And from there, they end up tying the game and going to overtime. But you could really tell that was huge. I mean, if the... Jazz come down and score again, and they were scoring at will. That could be a dagger. And then Jazz could go out and pull that game away. It was incredible to see Murray and Mitchell go at it. Jamal Murray finished with 36 points and 9 assists. Corey mentioned, you know, 57 points for Donovan Mitchell. Last four minutes of the fourth in the whole in overtime, they, they were responsible for about 95% of the team's scores, whether it was points or assists, or assisting to a score. And it was incredible to see these two go off and just go at each other, at each other. Murray was in such a groove. When he hits one of those grooves, it's actually scary for me as like a fan watching. Like I just feel like he's going to go infernal mode. Microwave. Exactly, the microwave. It was incredible. This was a game that I did not expect to be this close with no Conley and, and Boyan. And they really delivered. I think Quinn Snyder did a great job managing his team, managing the minutes. Clarkson played almost 40 minutes and had a pretty good game off the bench with 18 points. Gobert had a good game. Ingles had a great game, I thought. He hit some timely, timely threes. Exactly what his team needed. But the problem with this team is the bench, besides Clarkson, obviously. They have guys coming off the bench who really don't have much playoff experience or NBA experience at all. And it's going to be tough for them to really pull this one out. And then on the other side, I thought Jokic, surprisingly, I thought Gobert would really, really put pressure on Jokic. But especially in the first half, it seemed like Jokic just kept shooting over him. Like, Gobert wasn't even there. I mean, what did you see from Jokic? I thought he played a fantastic game. He didn't really have many assists as I thought he would. But what did you see in his game last night? I, I felt like he I, he did pretty good on Gobert. I mean, Gobert, reigning defensive player of the year. Jokic was just kind of toying with him, I felt, the whole game. Like, he had Gobert on a string, kind of. Given Gobert, I, he's still well-respected, obviously, but... I feel like Jokic has his number a little bit, and I want to see how there's adjustments throughout the series. Because Jokic is so crafty. He's he's hard to guard for a regular guy, and he already made Gobert kind of look out of sorts. That's exactly what I was thinking. I thought that he really, especially tonight, I thought he was just shooting at will over him. And it seemed like Gobert was kind of like worried to even get in his space and, and contest a jump shot. He made a great contest on a potential game winner in the fourth quarter when Jokic was driving to the rim and seemingly had an open layup, but 
Gobert contested it just enough to make a miss. But another thing I really want to talk about, which was I thought huge, a huge storyline, not only for last night's game, but for this series. I thought Denver missing Will Barton and, and Gary Harris was tremendous. First of all, they slid Michael Porter Jr. into the lineup at the three, and he, th- he played a fantastic first half. Hit some big threes, was scoring the ball. Doris Burke even made a nice little Kevin Durant reference about him, which I thought was pretty crazy. <laughs> but the second half, he really disappeared. And he was making really, really dumb mistakes as a rookie. Defensively, he wasn't getting over screens. He wasn't forcing anyone to a certain help defense. And then offensively, he was taking bad corner threes, just shots that with like about 14 seconds left of the shot clock that were unnecessary. They weren't open shots. They were contested. And I thought the fact that he was a rookie really showed last night. And I think them not having Gary Harris and Will Barton was a huge loss because those guys are their best, really, perimeter defenders besides Torrey Craig, who was in foul trouble all night. And you could tell. They had guys like Monte Morris, Jamal Murray, P.J. Dozier. These guys were guarding Donovan Mitchell, and he was getting past them and to the rim at will. And, you know, that wouldn't be so bad if Denver had an elite shot blocker, but they don't. Jokic is not known for his rim defense. So while the whole time Mitchell's getting to the rim, no one is stopping him at at the rim. And I think a lot of people are going to say it's a perimeter defense problem, but it's a bigger thing that... They're exposing Jokic in the paint. And usually he doesn't get exposed. Denver's usually the best team, one of the best teams on defense the whole league because they have all these perimeter guys that you can throw at wing players and guards. So I think once Denver gets Harrison Barton back, I don't think Mitchell will be doing, you know, 57 points again, even, even in the 40s. I think when you have so many bodies to throw at him, it will be a much different game. But as of right now, if they're out for an extended period of time in this series, I think... Donovan Mitchell's going to have his way in the series. And not only is Mitchell going to have his way, but the Jazz could win this series. See, I disagree there because I think yesterday he had to score 57 points and they still lost by 10. Right? Like we said, it's it's right now, it's just Gobert, Ingles, Clarkson helping Mitchell right now. Helping yesterday with Conley out. We don't know when Conley's going to be back. Hopefully Conley's back. It's cleared. Everything's okay. I think Conley helps with that team offensively, like facilitating everything. It's another threat. He's been playing better in the bubble, I felt, than earlier before the season was suspended. But also, it's it's tough. If you have to score 57 every game in a series against the same team, I don't know if they can even make it closer. I mean, given Mitchell played amazing, but I don't know as a team if the Jazz can put up enough points to deal with the Nuggets' high-scoring offense, even without Harris, without Barton, like you said. Yeah, 100%. 100%. And we even saw, we referenced Denver's depth so many times, and we saw it at work when Michael Porter Jr. was playing poorly in the second half. Mike Malone did not hesitate to take him out. Yeah. They have guys like Jeremiah Grant, who played almost 40 minutes yesterday and played fantastic. Fantastic. 19 points. Monte Morris, again, also 30 minutes off the bench. They have a lot of guys who can come in and make a difference. Yeah. And that's why I think, ultimately, you're right. It will be tough. You can't you, you can't score 57 points a game in a series. It's, it just won't happen. Hopefully, Conley comes back soon for them and they get another score. Let's move on to Boston and Philly last night, which was an interesting game to watch because we all knew that Embiid would be getting the ball in his hands 
almost all the time. And, and it seemed like that's what was going to happen for the most of the game in the early parts. And Bede had 11 quick points to start off, he, 5 or 5 from the field. He hit a crazy, crazy step back 3 at the shot clock winding down. He finished off with 26 points and 16 rebounds, but he only took 15 shots. And this is where I'm really going to get on Brett Brown like on this episode because it is unacceptable that Joel Embiid is only taking 15 shots. The same amount. I mean, Josh Richardson took more shots than him. Alec Burks and Tobias Harris took the same amount of shots as Joel Embiid. It is unacceptable. No one on Boston can guard Joel Embiid. And yes, they were sending a lot of help, a lot of double teams. But you have to get the ball in deeper, and you have to get the ball in quicker. Not only that, the spacing needs to be better. Did you hear about the, the lineup adjustment that they wanted to make? No, what did he game? say? What did he say? So before game one, I think it was on Sunday, he made a reference that he was really, really debating starting Fable instead of Horford. And really, everyone thought that, wow, this is like, this is a revelation because... That would make sense, right? Yeah, you're going to yeah. put four shooters around Embiid, right. which is what everyone has been wanting Brett Brown to do for forever. And instead, he goes with Horford anyway. And I cannot even begin to explain to you how bad Horford looked last night. And all right, I'm not going to give him that much hate because he played very well when Embiid wasn't in the game, I thought. I thought he had some great post-ups. He had some great defense when Embiid wasn't there. But with Embiid, he looked just so awful he ended the game on minus 18 on the court he had six points seven rebounds six assists he's not a big stat guy but even you can tell he really wasn't part of the game he wasn't in the game and Thibel on the other hand was played phenomenal he was only a minus two on the court he was everywhere defensively he was on Tatum he was on Jalen Brown he was making stops he was getting steals he was getting deflections he was doing the little things on the court and then he even hit a three. And I think that this needs to be the lineup change. They looked very well with Thibault. They made some runs with Thibault. And I think that if, if Brett Brown doesn't make a change, they're, they're going to get swept. Because Horford does not fit next to Embiid. And I've been wanting to convince myself that, he, that, that it could work. But I, I have to like let this. I have to give it up already. Because they looked awful last night with Horford on the court. I feel like we talked about Horford coming off the bench for a while. And I think he has to do it now. You you just can't in a playoff series, I feel, try to force Horford and Embiid to play together and make it work. You just can't. Especially against a Celtics team where Brad Stevens will take advantage of terrible chemistry offensively by the Sixers. You know, and also Tobias Harris, you're the second scoring option now that Simmons is out. You can't be going six for fifteen in a playoff game. I mean you played you had fifteen points, eight assists, eight rebounds, but you need to play better, I think. And he, I think he knows that too because of how of how he signed in Philly. He re-signed in Philly after getting traded there. Like the situation he in, and it sucks. It sucks that Simmons got hurt. But I feel like you have to step up to Tobias Harris. You also, I mean, Alec Burks. He was bought in also to be a shooter, shooting fifteen shots, so six or fifteen as well. I don't know, man. I, I feel like, like you said, you gotta feed Embiid. You just gotta feed Embiid, play through Embiid. And when he's out, maybe then play through Horford. Like we said, if, if when MB goes out, put Horford in. Try to have Horford as as that facilitating big man that he's always been known for. You know, playing playing as the ball moves, stuff like that. But 100%, Brett Brown needs to make adjustments. It's it's not time to be like stubborn right now. Come playoff time, we know Simmons is hurt. Simmons probably won't be back. You got to make the best of the situation, especially against a Celtics team where you have Tatum. 
you have Kemba, you have Brown just going at you. And then even at the end of the game, Brett Brown was literally asked about what he thinks about putting four shooters on the court next to Embiid. And he literally says he won't do it because it's going to make them easier to guard. Quote for quote, he says that. Terrible. I mean, it's unreal how this guy still has an NBA job. And on top of it all, on top of it all, they really played really sloppy. They had 18 turnovers last night, and B had five of them, mostly because Boston was doing a great, great job doubling the post at the perfect time, getting the ball out of B's hands, either to a different player or to a turnover. I think Boston played a great game. Philly seemed like they didn't even prepare for this game, and they were just coming out as a test trial for the game. And then also, I think on the Boston side, just like we're saying how bad Philly played, but Boston played great, I thought. I thought Tatum and Brown looked phenomenal. Tatum at one point was just taking over the game. And then when the Philly was coming back, they actually took the lead for a little bit. Jalen Brown was the one to get them back into the lead. When they were struggling to make shots, he was there. He was making the shots that that they needed. One last thing. I'm really happy to see Kemba finally on a winning team. And he just looked so happy last yesterday. I just want to point that out. He's really sacrificed a role to let Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum do their thing. 100%. And... Solely for the purpose of winning. I love to see it for him. He's a great guy. He's a great player. He deserves this. Even though I'm not the biggest Boston you know, fan, considering I live in New York. But I'm happy for Kemba. And if anyone's on this team that deserves to win, it's him. Yeah, 100%. Kemba's been playing his role incredibly. You know, he comes from the from the Hornets where he was the main guy. He was just probably the only scoring threat on his team. And now he gets to play behind Tatum and Brown who are just going to work and he's being like that sort of decoy like you still have to respect me I'm Kemba Walker I could still shoot these threes in your face I could still step back pop in your face I could still like I'm still that type of guy but I'm gonna facilitate I'm gonna lay back and just watch and play my role I feel like it's really underrated part of Kemba this year despite the numbers being down the winning is up and just because he's letting them do their thing doesn't mean he's not deadly himself. He hit a huge, huge pull-up jumper yep. in crunch time. And again, I'm hoping I'm hoping that he continues this thing. But there's some bad news with Boston because their fourth really, I guess, star, you could say, Gordon Hayward, again got hurt last night. Terrible. Rolled his ankle, going for a rebound. And the Celtics diagnosed him with a sprained ankle. He had to walk out of the arena on crutches. Real quick, what does this do for Boston if they, if they lose him right now? I mean, honestly, I think we're just going to see more Marcus Smart, maybe some more Greg Williams. But I feel like Marcus Smart will just take Hayward's minutes more, and we'll have to see how it goes from there. Do you think that they would be in trouble if Hayward's going to miss extended amount of time? Uh, I don't think they'll be in trouble because you still have Tatum, you still have Brown. And I'm sure Stevens has something to work with. I'm, I'm sure... The offensive load that Hayward has, maybe Kemba will take on. Maybe we'll see more more offensive firepower from Kemba instead of that back seat we were just talking about. Moving on to the last game, Nets versus Raptors. Wasn't much of a game. If you're a Nets fan, like my podcast uh, teammate here, it's going to be really quiet because this idiot said Nets in seven. And I did not say Nets and Seven. I said I was considering Nets and yeah, Seven. Even considering final... it's just blasphemy. Why would you even consider this? The Raptors are a top team. They proved it. Well coached. There were times where they, the Nets cut it down to 10. I'm sure you were heavily excited, heavily invested. Eight. Eight. Oh, they cut, I, it, to they cut eight. it to eight. 
No one gives a hoot. Raptors had the game in control the whole time. They were swarming Karis LeVert, which sucks because Karis LeVert had a great reseeding game run. But if you're getting swarmed double team, you can't expect much. He had how many assists? Like 13. So he was getting out of the double. Raptors are too good. Fred Van Vliet had eight, eight three-pointers. I don't, I don't know what else this is to say. Just He said Nets in seven, man. He, he was considering Nets in seven. How do I you said, consider I it? Say... He's an idiot. I don't know how. Uh, listen, what? listen, 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 listen. It's a long series, okay? That's all I'm saying. It's a long series. It's a long series. Yeah, you get the long series for you. You got blown out by 24. Toronto, you lost by 24. Toronto looked really good. I'm just going to make this brief because I don't want to think about it yesterday. But Toronto played phenomenal. They were game plan ready for Karis LeVert driving. And they really stacked the paint, the free throw line, waiting for him to get there. Because really no one else on the Nets can create besides Karis for himself or for others for that matter. And I thought that they, they, they played very well. They hit a lot of shots. They hit a ton of threes, which will not happen next game. I guarantee it. They were on fire. And, I mean, they hit 22 threes and, and at 50% clip. I think you're forgetting. So, I think you're forgetting to mention the biggest name of the series, Rondé Hollis Jefferson, the former Net. This is obviously a revenge series. You know, he came out 11 minutes yesterday, six points, two offensive rebounds. He hit a hundred percent of his free throws, four for four, and had one block. If that's not a revenge game, I don't know what is. He's clearly upset that the Nets fired Kenny Atkinson, and he's he, he's going for that 4-0 sweep. On to some coaching news. Over the weekend, the Chicago Bulls and the New Orleans Pelicans let go of both of their coaches. The Bulls let Jim Boylan go after about three years with the team. And the Pelicans let go of Gentry, Alvin Gentry. And after six years with the Pelicans, both moves which were not relatively surprising, especially the Jim Boylan one, in my opinion. I saw the Gentry one coming just because the Pelicans probably underachieved this year a little bit. But both of these rosters are pretty much well-equipped for the future. And I think that whichever coach they get, either of them, they'll be in pretty good position down the line. I have a couple names in mind that I would like to replace these guys, but what are your thoughts, Corey? I mean, I agree with you. I think I don't think either of these decisions were hard decisions by the respective teams. With Boylan, he was, he was not what I think the former GM was at Paxton back then what he thought, what he envisioned, and also with Gentry. I think Gentry came in to help with Anthony Davis and with Anthony Davis gone. I think, and David Griffin, the new GM coming in, I think it was just meant to be it, both sides parting ways. It, it makes sense at, at, at the point in where both of these respective franchises are. Yeah, the Bulls, it wasn't just the way they were performing. A lot of the players didn't like the way Boylan was really, especially when he first got the job, he took over for... Fred Hoiberg, and a lot of the players were quoted as that Boylan was really working them harder than than Hoiberg did in practice, and to the point where they didn't even want to play for him. There were a lot of arguments in the locker room that were reported, especially between Levine and Boylan. They were always going back and forth, and it just seemed like the players did not like him. And the crazy part is that, that Boylan got an extension last offseason, I believe, and then just to get fired in this offseason. So it really made no sense what direction they're going. The Bulls are just a mess in general. But hopefully this is a, a step for them in the right direction. And for the Pelicans, they just have, they had a great roster, I think. I think that 
They made it close to the playoffs, obviously, but they just played so poorly in the bubble. You have an all-star in Ingram, uh, a former all-star in Drew Holiday, who's all defense, and then you got a bunch of young guys. Zion Williamson, who we know has been injured a little bit this year and been under minutes restrictions. Lonzo Ball, Jackson Hayes. They got some great veterans like Favors and Redick. This is a playoff team, in my opinion. And the coach that I really want to replace Gentry in New Orleans is, is my, my guy, Kenny Atkinson. He didn't get the job with the Knicks. And I think that he'll be a perfect fit with New Orleans, especially with how well he does with point guards. And I think that Lonzo Ball, who showed major, major improvements uh, during the season, and then came into the bubble and pretty much averaged, I think it was like eight points, five rebounds, five assists on horrendous shooting from the field. And I think that Kenny Atkinson transformed D'Angelo Russell into an all-star. Spencer Dinwiddie into a, a high-caliber sixth-man player. And I think that he could really take Lonzo Ball to that next level. To, he's been getting comparisons to Jason Kidd his whole career. I think that he can really, really push him towards that comparison. 100%. I think Kenny is a great option for both these teams, the Bulls and the Pelicans, but I like the Pelicans more just because of what we know Kenny can do with youth. You know, that that Pelican team is majority youth. Like like you said, we already saw what he did with D'Angelo Russo. And I think there's a connection here with the Pelicans. Their general manager, Trajan Langdon, was the assistant GM with Brooklyn when Atkinson was still there. So, I mean, I'm sure there's connections still. And I'm, I'm happy for Kenny because I think in terms of... I know he was touted for the Knicks job. I would have loved him on the Knicks. But I honestly think this Pelican situation is a way better coaching spot for him to go to. Yeah, I think... I mean, if they don't get him, the Bulls should definitely get at, go after him. But if the Pelicans do settle with Kenny... Now, again, a lot of the names that have been brought up with the Pelicans are like Jason Kidd and Tyron Lue, which makes no sense for me again. I, I'm not sure why these guys are even getting consideration, especially for a team that needs player development. I just don't see what Kidd and, and Lue can bring to the table for them. I think Kenny's the perfect guy for player development. And then for the Bulls, I think a guy that has been getting a lot of interviews lately, Ime Udoka, who is a former NBA player, and he coached... After his career, he was an assistant with the Spurs with Greg Pop for about eight years, and now he's currently in his second year with Philly. I think I'm a big believer in the Spurs organization and really getting people from that tree just to get the kind of culture and and reorganize a franchise. And what better franchise needs a complete rebuild than the Chicago Bulls? I think if you bring in Odoka and you really let him pick his staff, formulate his team the way he wants it to be, along with you know the general manager, I think he can really prove himself that he can also be a coach like Kenny Atkinson. Develop these guys. They have a great young roster, Kobe White, Wendell Carter Jr. Possibly revamp a player like Otto Porter Jr. who had high expectations. I think that, this, that he would be a great fit for them, and I think those two guys should have jobs next season. On that note, we really appreciate you guys listening, tuning in. We're so excited for the playoffs to be here. I think these next really months of episodes, this next month of episodes is going to be phenomenal because as you can tell from the first day, there's just nonstop great action, great high-level playoff basketball. And we're excited to talk about it. So thanks for listening, guys.
We'll talk to you guys on Thursday. We'll be back with another episode. Peace, guys. Later.